The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. I'm John Foley. Welcome to The Exchange, and thank you for joining us. As a US congressman, Barney Frank was at the sharp end of the financial crisis. The regulation that bears his name is one of its lasting legacies. He came to Times Square to talk to us about what's changed since then and what hasn't. So in a 32-year congressional career, um, Barney Frank, you put your name to a lot of... uh, very exciting causes. I want to start with the one that you literally put your name to, the the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Bill, which was passed in July 2010, so coming up to eight years ago. Um, looking looking back, how, how do you think now about what that bill achieved, along, alongside knowing what you wanted it to achieve when you... I'm very satisfied. Being? We had the advantage paradoxically, of a terrible crisis. Um, We were able to put things in that bill that would not have been politically possible in uh, other circumstances. Um, uh, We had the president who uh, had a very good team, uh, Senator Chris Dodd, with whom I worked, who who was a very able legislator. And it it was essentially what we wanted to do. In in some ways, it was intellectually simplified. Um, We weren't inventing new stuff. What had happened, as often happens in our economy, the financial sector had innovated. They had come up with a lot of very new things. And the innovations at some point reached critical mass and they outstripped the existing regulatory framework. Now, we unfortunately as a country waited too long to update the regulations, but we saw what had gone wrong. And uh, our job was fairly simple in, in intellectual terms, which is, all right, let's, let's put in new rules that reflect what they're doing. And one of the things that it was very striking was the continuity, because I first became chairman of that committee in 2007, the last two years of the Bush administration. And I spent much of the last two years, particularly 2008, working very closely with the Bush administration's top economic officials, uh, Secretary of Treasury Paulson, Fed Chair Bernanke, FDIC Chair uh, Baer. And what people should know is there was a great continuity between the recommendations of the outgoing Bush people and the incoming Obama people. Right, because you were chair of the, so you're chair of the, of the, of the House Financial Services Committee but under Bush, but then of course this bill gets and passed then, under and Obama. Under Obama, and, and I mean there was a, so I was in a position to observe the, uh, the continuity, there were some differences, most particularly the Volcker rule, uh, Henry Paulson didn't like it, but um, I say that to say we were really relying, responding to the logic of the situation. Essentially, you had a model of the economy that worked pretty well, in which people who made, people who borrowed money were borrowing it from an institution, and they had to repay it to that institution. And if I'm a lender, I'm going to be very careful about who I lend money to because I need them to pay me back. And then for a couple of reasons, new money coming in, information technology, very importantly, it became possible for the lender now 
to lend money to a whole bunch of people and then immediately package those loans into a security, sell them into the market, and no longer have any concern about whether or not the loans are repaid. So the, the emphasis in the lending business shifted from worrying about the quality of each loan to profiting from the quantity of a whole bunch of loans, and a lot of bad loans got made. And then, with all those new securities, uh, people figured, well, let's, let's use them. So uh, in, in an interesting way, first you had the loans, then the loans were packaged, and the packages themselves became items. Uh, so, uh, but the problem was that people then engaged in this derivative trading, and once again, they were not required to put their money up. So what finally happened in 2008, a lot of loans had been made that couldn't be repaid because the lender didn't have that discipline. As those loans began to default, all the other instruments around them defaulted, and that was a crash. So you had basically two tasks, right? You had to sort out what was going to happen if a big institution were to fail, um, and you also had to try and make sure that a big institution didn't fail or was less likely to get I appreciate get you know, getting that, that. People don't confuse back. them. Yeah, we actually had three stages. First of all, diminish the likelihood that any institution will get so indebted uh, that, that it begins to have trouble. So you do that by saying, no, you cannot lend money to people and immediately sell it off and therefore not worry about it. You cannot sell somebody something called a credit default swap, which is insurance against their securities defaulting, unless you have put up some money to pay that off. Uh, you know, nobody can sell you life insurance in America without having the money to pay off. But that new instrument, no new rules. So the first thing is make it less likely that they'll get in debt. Secondly, the intermediate, make them have more capital on hand so that when they do get in debt, they'll be able to pay it off themselves. And then finally, as you correctly put it, if those first two safeguards fail, they get too much into debt and they can't pay it off, they don't have enough capital, then there has to be a system for, uh, for dealing with that. And by the way, the, the, well, that's something that many of the right-wing Republicans announced. The basics of that system were worked out by Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke, Bush's two top economic advisors. Uh, and they had been telling us in 2008 that we needed to do something. And interestingly, we had begun to work with them. Okay, what will we do if that happens? And then before we could deal with it, it happened. First, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And they, they told us, look, we have only two options in case of a collapse. We can do nothing and let them go bankrupt and cause all these problems to everybody else. That's what they did with Lehman Brothers. I don't think they had a choice. And then, after the consequences of Lehman Brothers' default was so serious, they said, okay, well, then we better, uh, we'll have to help pay off the debt. So that was AIG. But the two choices were either let it go bankrupt or have the taxpayers pay it off. And we were working on a third way. We ultimately did get a third way, which we put into the bill, but not before uh, two, of the other, two of the bad ways happened. So eight years later, now you were seeing supposedly what was marketed as a rollback of some of Dodd-Frank. I mean, to us, it doesn't look like much has actually been rolled back. How do you view the tweaks, let's call them tweaks, that have been made? So I, I think you were even supportive of some of these tweaks. I was. In fact, I was just with the uh, very able woman, Jean Maslanowicz, who had been the chief of staff on my side, 
And she said, you know, we would have done some of those ourselves. You, you said it correctly. I wouldn't have voted for that bill, in part, by the way, not because of Dodd-Frank, but because it cut back the reporting requirements for racial discrimination in housing. And race has been, for the entire history of this country, our number one problem. Um, they also had one thing I didn't like. We said in our bill that $50 billion would be the level at which you became, in assets, a significant bank and got more supervision. That was too little. And it should have gone up to 100, maybe 125. They put it up in that bill at 250. I regret that, but it's not a serious break. Otherwise, there were no real rollbacks at all. Um, what they did, in fact, and this is why I was ambivalent about it, though I said I, I couldn't have voted for anything that weakened racial enforcement, but I, I had mixed feelings about the passage for this reason. From the beginning of our deliberations, it was clear that only one group in the country had the political power to derail us, and those were the independent community bankers. I mean, people talk about the big banks and J.P. Morgan Chase and Citicorp, and frankly, politically, they don't have much clout. They, they, they are very effective in the administrative process where they can hire experts and sue people. But when it comes to votes in Congress, one, they're not very popular, and two, they're geographically very concentrated. The community banks, the small banks, on the other hand, they're in everybody's district and in everybody's state. And when we passed the bill, we made a deal with them. Um, one of the things that we got was the Volcker Rule, which we didn't think applied to them. It said, if you're a bank, you can't engage in complex derivative transactions with your own money. The small banks turned out to be so nervous about that that they were spending a lot of money to comply with it. Anyway, what the bill did, frankly, was to buy off the small banks, who had never been a big part of the problem. And they put into law a couple of provisions that calmed down the banks under 10 billion in assets. With them calmed down, there is now no longer any political threat to the bill. So what is left of Dodd-Frank, which is about 96% of what was there originally, is now there uh, until there was a cataclysm. My, my guess is the way things work, there will probably be no further significant change until we come through the next cycle of innovation, which outstrips regulation. But I'm very happy with what we have in Dodd-Frank as of now. But 15 years from now, nobody can tell what there might be that would get around it. And 15 is very optimistic. The hope is that, well, we did give them a lot of power beyond specifics so that they do have the power to reach out and say there's something new. No, no, we, we're going to go after that. But the, 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 the important point is this. We waited too long. Uh, the various things began to transform the business of lending and, and the uh, uh, finance associated with it uh, in the early 80s. And we didn't do anything about it until 28 years later when there was a collapse. I hope that next time people won't wait so long. So if you rewind a bit back to sort of 2008, um, 2008 was a bad year basically from the get-go. It started badly. It kind of ended a little bit less badly. But, you know, there were a lot. it was a dramatic year, let's say. Um, looking back, there were lots of lessons that it seems quite easy to identify, things like risk retention, banks with insufficient capital and so on. But when you were in the thick of it, how much visibility did you have over what the actual problem was? A good deal through 2008. And again, there was a very unusual collaboration among me as the representative of House Democrats and the two Republican administrators. I strike that because, you know, one of the questions, I stress it, one question we get is, when did, what, whatever happened to bipartisanship? And I'm going to be very partisan about what happened to bipartisanship. The Republicans killed it. If you look at the last year of the Bush administration, you got great cooperation between Bush's appointees and the Democrats in Congress. 
And so then, that's Bernanke, Ben Bernanke at the Fed, Sheila Bear at the, F, the Federal and, Deposit and, Insurance Committee. And Henry Paulson at the Treasury. And George Bush, to his credit, backed them up over the objection of a lot of conservative Republicans. What then happened was Obama becomes president, and the Republicans in Congress never gave Obama the kind of cooperation, not always agreement, but, but the kind of effort to cooperate that uh, we gave to Bush. Um, you know, look, we were helping Bush do things that were very unpopular, the TARP, the program that temporarily bailed out the banks. We, they, they paid it back with interest. Um, the TARP will go down in history, I believe, as the single most successful, unpopular thing the federal government ever did. Um, and a lot of the Republicans, in fact, never, never fully supported it. But we did that for Bush, even though, by the way, this is a, the TARP is like six weeks before an election when the political motive should be at their uh, highest. But during the year, I, we were able to identify these problems. Well, first of all, I will say on behalf of the liberal Democrats, we were the first ones to see that lending money to people who couldn't pay it back was a bad idea. We did not see it in f at first as a systemic problem, but we saw it as a problem for the borrowers and even more for the neighborhoods. You got low-income neighborhoods where more and more <clears throat> foreclosures would happen, and that would, that would ruin the neighborhood. So we had begun already to work on trying to stop the bad loans. Is that year 2008, you saw some, some great examples of bipartisan uh, Lawmaking, right? You had the economic stimulus at the beginning of the year, which I think passed in a fairly bipartisan Yes, in which manner. Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Senate and House leaders, delivered for Bush. And as Pelosi pointed out, she knew the economy needed this. She preferred more spending. Bush, of course, wanted tax cuts. So, in the interest of helping the economy and doing the right thing in substance, Pelosi and Reid insisted on tax cuts that were, for one of the few times in American history, biased towards low income people. So she solved that, you know, she, she resolved it. Yeah, the Democrats gave Bush a, a stimulus and then worked with him uh, on the TARP and worked with him throughout the year. And there could not be a more stunning contrast than between the cooperation we gave George Bush when we were the majority and what the Republicans did to Obama. But is, this, is, is it really a Bush versus Obama issue, or is it, because, is it that in the, in the thick of a crisis, in the heat of the moment, you can actually create consensus? Because the Dodd-Frank happened after the crisis had kind of passed. We did not get consensus. The Republicans didn't vote for Dodd-Frank in the House, but nobody thought in 2009 that the thing was over. It was still in the midst of crisis. Let's, no, I, I have to disagree with that. When President Obama asked for a stimulus, we were still in pretty bad trouble. We were still losing 400 and 500,000 jobs a month. Um, retrospectively, you can now say, oh, the, 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 the tide crested, but you couldn't tell that at the time. No, this was a combination of angry partisanship and the ideology of the Republicans. Um, and and uh, let me again put it this way. When the Democrats supported Bush, and we have a perfect sort of laboratory test here, Economy needing some help, early 2008, Democrats helped George Bush pass it. A year later, economy dragging, post-crisis, we now clear, Democrats, Obama asking for Republican help, he doesn't get any Republican votes for it. I mean, and, and Mitch McConnell said, look, my job is to keep him from being reelected, which means to make him unsuccessful. Um, Chris Dodd uh, is a very... He's a, he's a man of, of was as a senator, a guy who believed very much in Senate tradition. He served there 36 years. His father before him had served in the Senate. He believed in bipartisanship and consensus. I disagree with Chris on one issue. He likes the filibuster. I think it's 
anti-democratic. He was determined to have a bipartisan bill. And in fact, President Obama and I both kind of told him we would have worried that in the interest of getting Republican support, he might weaken some of our provisions. And so he was working with the Republicans. He had subcommittees of the Democrat and the Republican working on the bill. He had a meeting scheduled for, I think, Monday or Tuesday to start going through the bill and approving it and amending it, et cetera. On the Friday before, he got a call from the leading Republican on the committee, Richard Shelby, who said, we're not offering any amendments, we're just voting no. In other words, the other proof is how you said before, that there were only three Republicans who voted for it. Um, the Republicans just decided when Obama won and we took and we kept our congressional majority that it was in their interest to sabotage us, but it was also ideological. It was also that this is the right-wing ideology that prevailed. And finally, I have to say this, they correctly read, we talk now about Donald Trump's base, et cetera. Well, that base had started to move to the right even before Trump. And the proof of that, in 2010, and this is really what confirmed the rightward grip on the Republican Party, in 2010, Republicans who had voted with Republican President George Bush for the TARP in 2008 did very badly at the polls. Um, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson ran for governor, lost to Rick Perry. Um, Senator Robert Bennett, a very distinguished Republican leader, couldn't even get on the ballot in his own state of Utah. Congressman Michael Castle would have been a runaway winner in Delaware as the senator, lost to a right-wing woman who actually had to deny that she had ever said she was a witch, and as a result, the Democrats have that seat. So the, the Republicans turned down Obama for ideological reasons, for reasons of, of partisanship and fear that the Democrats would, would prosper, and also correctly reading their own voters. So let's talk a bit about some of the, the social fallout from the crisis period, because you, you um, I mean, there were, it seems to me there were kind of two, two important movements that, that arose and then changed form, and then, I mean, we can talk about where they are now. What, one being the Occupy movement, one, the other being the Tea Party. Both of them strongly opposed for different reasons to, to bailing out banks, effectively. Um, how, to, to what extent do you see the, those movements as reflected in the kind of discord oh, I, I, and dysfunction John, that we have now? I to be impressed by your question because you just asked me a question which sounds like what I wrote in a piece I'm doing for a book on the crisis. Um, yeah, here was the problem with the TARP. It was basically successful. Um, and it was my only serious disagreement with Hank Paulson, whom I admire greatly. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, Paulson as a Republican. Uh, in both Paulson's and Bernanke's books on the crisis, they make it pretty clear they're not Republicans anymore. Um, but um, to get the votes for the TARP in the House among Democrats, given that the Republicans were going to be voting against it in a majority, and a heavy majority at first, I had to appeal to the Liberal Democrats, which was fine because I agreed with them. And what we said was, and we wrote this into the bill, some of the money that we were voting would be used not just for the banks, but for programs to help people avoid foreclosure when they had a good reason. And in fact, that was the part that set off the Tea Party with the uh, CNBC guy whose name I forget, ranting about how I pay my mortgage and why should we pay anybody else's. You're absolutely right, the Tea Party did grow out of that. On the other hand, we got the worst of both worlds because Paulson, once the bill had gone through, with the first $350 billion, he was so panicked about the possibility of, of, of widespread failure that he used all the first $350 billion 
on helping the banks, and nothing was left over for foreclosure. And he and I had an angry confrontation, and I said, you, you're making a liar out of me. That's how I got the bill through. He said, okay, you're right. I, I, I thought we needed to spend this. So he agreed to ask for the second 350. That's the way it was structured. But he said, this is now December of 2008, Obama's president-elect. He's a lean duck treasury secretary. He said, I'm not going to ask for the 350 unless Obama says it's okay, because I don't think, as the outgoing administration, we should do that. Obama's response was similar, frankly, to the problem we had when Franklin Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover couldn't get along after the 32 election of the Depression. And in fact, the American Constitution was amended because Roosevelt didn't take office until March of 33, and that caused so much problems it was moved back to January. But January still turned out to be too much because in December, we're Paulson finally agrees that he will ask for the extra $375 billion and use some of it for foreclosure if Obama says okay. But Obama gives what I have to acknowledge, although I was angry, the standard response in that situation, which is this. Look, Paulson has the authority to do this. They're still in power. I am not in power. I have no ability to influence how it's spent. Why should I be made responsible for triggering money the spending of which I will have no influence over. And he used the phrase that was always used by presidents in that situation. We only have one president at a time. So as a result of that stalemate, we got no money for foreclosure. By the way, my response when Obama said that was that it apparently with regard to trying to help people in need, he had overstated the number of presidents we had. So that effectively turned the bailout That's into just occupied. that. It was a bailout exactly. of banks. That, it wasn't a bailout of people. The argument that the bailout was only for the banks is wrong because, frankly, if the banks went under, so would everybody else. And True. Let's put it to the, if there's no money in the ATM machine, that's going to be more of a problem for a working guy than for Jamie Dimon or J.P. Morgan Chase. I mean, that, so that, But it is true that in its specific terms, it was money for the banks and not, and for the auto industry. So it was not totally um, just the financial people. But uh, there was also... There was no money for foreclosure. And that is true. I, I, I agree. that. So you got both Tea Party and Occupy upset. My problem, by the way, was that um, the, the real problem for the Democrat turned out to be that the Tea Party movement was much smarter politically than Occupy. I mean, the Tea Party people understood the political system. And in some they, ways, they got what they wanted. They went out and registered now. and voted in the primaries. And the Occupy people thought they were going to make change by smoking dope and beating drums. And it turns out... Which they did with Panache. Yes, but drug circles do not have much impact on elected officials. So has finance rehabilitated itself, do you think? I mean, we, the way, if you listen to chief executives like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase, they talk a bit, a bit more than they used to about doing what's right for America, but they're still getting paid, you know, oh, $30 million a year. They, if, if the laws went away, I think they would go back. Well, some of them have learned that this was a problem. I mean, they learned that you can transfer risk from one group to another, but you can't make it disappear. And ultimately, it's systemically bad. So I don't think they would go back to the same bad old practice. But no, I don't for a minute think that if we relax things that they, I, I don't think they are being motivated by a, by a, by a community spirit. They're more prudent wisely, but it's also the rules. Look, I'll give, I'll give you the example of what we're seeing now. One of their uh, mantras is, if you're going to regulate, do it by principles and not by rules. State the principles. Don't hold us to specific rules. Well, there are two problems with that. First of all, if you ever do want to get anybody prosecuted for abuse, you got to have rules because you, under the due process of law that says you got to know what was what was expected of you, you can't send someone to jail for violating a principle. It's got to be a rule. We didn't do enough of that. But secondly, 
what they have done is this, and you see this now with this butchering of the Consumer Bureau under, under Mick Mulvaney's reign of terror. He complained to the Republican... The Consumer Bureau, which was set up as a result of Dodd-Frank. It was part of the bill, yes. And one of the things we did in the bill was to say that they would be able to police, uh, protect people against uh, unfair and deceptive practice, fraudulent, deceptive, and unfair practices. The Republicans vehemently objected to us saying that we shouldn't, the, the, including unfair practices. They said, how do we know what that is? And since then, when, although obviously not since Mulvaney took over, when the Bureau did act under its statutory mandate to go after things that were unfair, the businesses replied by saying, oh, show me where that practice is, is, is prohibited. In other words, they told us to regulate by principles and not rules, but when we tried to invoke the principle as a basis for enforcement, they said, oh, that's not valid. You've got to be specific. So uh, the, while we're looking back or looking forward while looking back, I, the, one other thing that I want to talk to you about, um, you, um, you were for a long time the only openly LGBT Congress person, I believe. Well, you I was know. never the only one. My, my, you didn't? I was the only one. I came out first voluntarily. My colleague Gary Studs had been. Um, so th there was a period when I was, because there were a couple others. Gary Studs retired, and the two Republicans were both forced out by opposition within their own party. How, w when you look back at how things were earlier in your career and how things are now, how, how far do you think we've come? Because if you look at Congress now, there's a like seven. It is, we have come enormously far. On the substance of the question of how gay and lesbian and bisexual people should be treated, Donald Trump is better than John F. Kennedy. Now, in context, Trump is, of course, terrible because the world has moved. But John Kennedy was for not allowing gay people to work in the federal government. He uh, certainly had no interest in putting us into the military. He thought we should not be given security clearances. I mean, so the, the fact is, if you live in much of the United States today as a gay, lesbian, bisexual, and increasingly transgender, although we, we, we've been lagging there, you're fine. There, you have no, you, you are at no disadvantage. No social movement in America has moved so quickly in, in the 50 years since, uh, since no more. And uh, we'll, we'll clean up, I think, the last few things. The public is increasingly on our side. Barney, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your time with us at Royce's Breaking News. I had fun. That's all for this episode of our Financial Crisis series. I'd like to thank our producers, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, sign up for the podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or at breakingviews.com.